0: Hi everybody, my guest today is Ian Danter. Ian is a broadcaster and musician, probably best known for his work at TalkSport. He's also an accomplished drummer and has been playing from an early age. We had a good chat about how he got to where he is today. Hi Ian. Hi Chris. How are you? I'm all right, how are you? I'm
1: absolutely average. No, I'm great mate, it's it's good to see you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we were just talking before, weren't we, about... I can't actually remember the last time I saw you, but I think possibly the last time I saw you, and we really need to talk about this, was a gig that we did, uh, I don't know, maybe it could have been 10 years ago. Uh, You were on bass and vocals, I was on guitar, and how many drummers did we have?
1: Uh, 598. I think it was. Uh, It was an event city in Manchester, so this would be middle of 2012. Oh, okay, so we, right. Uh, and yeah, we, we set a world record that day for 598 drummers playing the same beat at the same time. But before that, I put a bass on with you and uh, Simon, who works for uh, Marshall. That's right. Drums, And we played some songs and got all the drummers to play along with us doing like Seven Nation Army and... Uh, what was it? Long Way to the Top, If You Want a Sausage Roll, things like that. I, 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 those sorts of songs, which was just, it was the most unholy racket, but it was a brilliant unholy racket,
0: wasn't it? It was the most bizarre thing, I think. One of one of them, I've done a few bizarre gigs. That was definitely up there with them because I've never, firstly, I've never felt so outnumbered in all my life, being the only <laughs> guitarist with so, like 600 odd drummers. Um, and also because we were in this huge... It was like a hanger, wasn't it? It was unbelievably big. And yeah. hearing, hearing while we were playing, cause there was a stage set up that we were on and then on the floor essentially were all the drummers with all their kits and playing and just hearing the echoes of 600 odd drummers playing in time. Honestly, it was actually something to behold. It was something to behold,
1: wasn't it? All the drummers, the funny thing was all the drummers were told expressly before they came, just bring a, a four piece kit uh, because the the pattern you're playing is just don't 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 it's that a pretty simple pattern but of course some drummers couldn't help themselves could they and brought no, the full, drummers 15, and brought exactly brought the full 15 shell kit and and the put upon girlfriend came along as well who sat there on the carpet next to their fella just looking up and going can we go on yet you know sort of <laughs> thing and, uh, it was quite a day that I have to say, Chris. It that, was. Yeah, we. I became a record holder. I've Still got the certificate somewhere. I don't
0: know. Yeah, and I. I even jumped on a kit when the actual record thing took place. I even jumped on a kit. I remember <laughs> with with my daughter at the time, who was tiny, and she sat on my lap, and I played uh, a very bad beat along with it. Yeah, it was a really nice thing to be part of. Though. Um, yeah. I want to. Um, I want to start by saying I did a video. I've been doing these videos. Uh, and some of them have been about some of my guitars, my older guitars. And there was one uh, guitar in particular that I have, which is a 1981 Gibson Les Paul Custom in Tobacco Burst. And I bought that guitar in uh, 98 or 99 from a shop in Birmingham called Musical Exchanges. Now, you know this shop incredibly well, or did know this shop incredibly well, because you worked there, although we didn't meet, where I'm sure we didn't meet while you were working there. No, um, I'd
1: left by that time. Yeah.
0: So I want to start before exchanges, but I want to know your path uh, and when you first started playing. Was it drums or was it another instrument? Uh, and like the early years from when you started up to exchanges.
1: Okay. Well, so I was born in 68. And by the time I was like eight or nine, my dad wanted me to learn piano because my, my dear old late dad was an incredible. Piano player. He could play the sort of Gershwin stuff. He was kind of a lounge piano player. He could also do the Les Dawson stuff, uh right. the deliberate playing it badly stuff. I sure. mean, my dad, wow, he, he he was a brilliant piano player, and he and he wanted me to, to play. I've got two older brothers. Um, I'll get to them in a minute. Uh, Phil's five years older than me, Rob's seven years older. So I started on piano lessons when I was about eight or nine, maybe. And I was showing a degree of aptitude for it, you know. What I quickly discovered was I had, a, I had perfect pitch. I learned that very early on that I, I had that ability to pick things out. Um, get to the age of about 10 or 11, and my brother, Phil, the one that's five years old, has just started in a band that rehearses at a church hall just down the road. I go there to watch him and be the annoying little brother. And i watch the monster. And the only one who's having any fun is the drummer. The only one that's got a smile on his face is the drummer. So I say to my mum when I get back, Mum, I, I want to play drums. Uh, and thankfully, she didn't throw it, dismiss it out of hand. She she bought me a practice pad, with, you know, from oh, what would the shop have been Woodruff's in Birmingham? Probably should have got it from. Okay. And a pair of sticks, and I started with that. Um, kept the piano lessons up for a few years. Got to grade five standard by the time I was in my teens. Okay. But the the, the drums just kept kept at me kept eating away at me I, I had ice cream tubs instead of tom-toms on my bed um, I had a lino floor in my bedroom so that made a good bass drum sound that was my kit right for, for a few years and then by the time I was 14 I got my first drum set which was a knackered old premier international kit that belonged to a friend of my cousin my dad got it for 50 quid or something but wow what Christmas present that was I can't tell you Uh, It was rusted to goodness knows what, but it was a proper drum kit. So drums took over from about late 82 onwards for me. um, The piano sort of fell by the wayside and I joined my first band uh, about three years later with a a school friend uh, and a guy who's still my best mate, guitarist friend called Keith to this day, still my best mate. And we started, you know, writing songs as well. We we were quite, we were ambitious. We thought we we weren't just going to be a covers band. We were going to write our own stuff. Um, uh, And that's how that developed. Um, I left school. I went to sixth form college, got a couple of A-levels. And my first job after I left college, I didn't go to uni. Uh, I worked in a bank for a year and hated it. But then I got into music retail. You mentioned exchanges. I got there in the end, but... Um, I worked at a, small, a smaller music shop just outside Solihull called Express Music before that um, for two or three years. And then I got a job at Musical Exchanges and working in their guitar department because during the time I'd worked at Express Music, to, ostensibly to sell their pianos, I was picking up guitar and learning how to play guitar right. to, a, to an extent where my guitar product knowledge and my car, guitar ability was pretty good. So they hired me at Exchanges in 1992 as a guitar salesman. And I worked there for five years.
0: How ironic.
1: Yeah, I know. And so <coughs> I, the drums were always the first instrument for me as as the years went through. But, you know, the piano was always kept, you know, in the sort of the in the background and the guitar grew more and more prominent. Uh, as an instrument because I was I was selling them every day and I was you know and just picking up watching the other guys in the shop watching their techniques you know and and learning how to be the best guitar player I could be
0: of course so when you were growing up on the drums and you were learning who were your inspirations and who are still now your inspirations
1: well luckily because my two older brothers had a record collection that I could sort of siphon ideas off my first heroes were people like Brian Downey from Thin Lizzy, Ian Pace from Deep Purple, Cozy Powell. Um, those three guys, yeah, particularly. The classic um,
0: British rock guys.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bill Collins as well from from his, his, his you know the yeah. early Genesis work, and and Peter Chris from Kiss as well. As a big Kiss fan, you know, uh, yeah. the early Peter Chris He's playing degenerated as the seventies went on. But if you listen to an album like Alive, the first live album from 75 he's playing is much more free much more jazzy and I really like that it was a different sort of he didn't know what he was going to do next sort of thing I quite like that about his style but Cozy Powell was all about the double bass drum Brian Downey was all about the 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 the, the beautiful control of the hi-hat Ian Pace was all about the rudiments
0: yeah
1: they all had little skills so I learned loads off all those guys
0: But I think you were probably, you were growing up in that era, though, with, I mean, the drummers that you've just mentioned, some of the best drummers ever, especially to have ever come out of the UK, but you were lucky enough to grow up in the the era of them, weren't you?
1: Absolutely. And it's funny, it took me a few years after that to get into Bonham and and Neil Peart and discover those guys. Yeah. Uh, My brother went away to university and came back listening to Jazz Fusion, um, people like Larry Carton and Lee Rittner and uh, and Alan Holdsworth. And I try, honestly, I tried to get that, but it just didn't register with me Sure. Uh, enough to to take a, a a real deep interest in it. Although some of the stuff he used to play me, from a drumming perspective, left me bamboozled. He played me a Weather Report song once. It was like musical appreciation with my brother. He'd sit yeah. me down and say, like, you're listening to this now. And he put on uh, a Weather Report album. Omar Hakim was with Weather Report by this time. And there's a song called D-flat Waltz on an album called Domino Theory. Mm-hmm. And it's just a wonderful... Lovely little rhythm like that. And he's playing all these incredible fills around it. And of course, there's Wayne Shorter going berserk on the sax and Zana will doing everything stupid uh, on his keyboard. But songs like that did grab me. But as a genre... It didn't grab me anything like the way that the rock stuff i listened to did
0: of course of course um so you were brought up on good stuff man and like you say ironically ended up being um seeing the light and learning a proper instrument like guitar <laughs> uh, and so tell me about the exchanges days because uh it, i i mean again i mentioned in this video that i did when i got it it was like it was just such a cool place with it with the downstairs bit and they had the vintage and rare bit which is where i found this guitar that i own now uh that i found there back in the 90s. But, Tell me uh, some of the highlights, and in particular, can you share with us the um, the Eddie Van Halen story? Would be amazing if you can.
1: Oh yeah. So when I came to exchanges, um, it was a very different looking shop to the one that you shopped in some years later with that downstairs sure emporium that used that whole area that you shopped in used to be it used to belong to a lighting and PA company. Okay, that owned it for a few years during the eighties and early nineties. And in the end, they sold up two exchanges and moved out. So originally where the acoustics were in the time you went, that was the guitar department. And it was like, a, it was incredible. It was like a shanty town of amplifiers because musical exchanges, the whole premise was, it it was based on people part exchanging old amps and guitars and pedals for new stuff. And you would walk into that guitar department with its wonderful musty smell. And there were lots of second-hand gear. Lots of like, there were about ten PV renowns I seem to remember. Like, you know, everyone was getting rid of PV renowns around the time I started there, which was '92. And there was that. There was also that slight crossover era, Chris, where um, guitarists were starting to get rid of their JCM 800 and 900 heads, (laughs) right? And the whole era of the of the JMP one preamp and and the Quadroverb. And you know the, everybody the early
0: played, digital stuff,
1: yeah. Everyone or Rocktron and Telefects If you're yep. a little bit more right? So everyone wanted. All the guitarists seemed to want to upgrade, no matter how good that you know. And of course, they repented at leisure when they realised, in retrospect, just how good that JCM 800 sounded <laughs> um, compared to you know what they ended up getting. But that was the that's that was the year I remember. And also one of the first things I remember, I walked into that guitar department the first day, and um, there were two heritage Les Pauls um, on sale, secondhand heritage Les Pauls, 1980 would that be? Kind of Gary Moore style Les Pauls. And they were up on a shelf that you couldn't reach if you were just a a mug punter, you would have to ask uh, to, to get them down. And they were both selling I can remember it because they were, the labels were on there. You don't, you don't get things like that. 1,250 pounds. Wow. You could probably, it's probably, they're probably worth 10 times that. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure they sold within two or three months of me starting there. Um, that guitar department that that you shopped in the one downstairs that didn't happen for a couple of years. That was probably about 1994, Okay. 95 that the, the expansion happened. The Eddie Van Halen story is in the old guitar department. So 93 Van Halen are on tour. Um, Balance tour, I think.
0: I guess it would have so, been, yeah.
1: Somebody might know better. Anyway, they played the NEC um, and some of the guys, I didn't go, I wasn't able to go, but some of the guys had gone to see it in the shop. And um, the next day, um, me and Gary Morris, who was my, uh, my buddy, the guitar salesman, we were mm-hmm. the two main guitar salesmen. We're just in the guitar department and little Gary Chapman, the boss yep. comes in and says, lads, lads, have, have we got an EVH model? And i point to, yeah, we've got uh, like a pink quilted top one there. Great. Um, give it to Johnny, the, um, the guitar tech, tell him I need a set of nine to 46s or something on there now. And it's got to be detuned half a step and it's gonna be done in the next 45 minutes. Yeah, okay, what's it for Gaz? Can't tell you. All right, so I, I grabbed this. It was the one Van Halen model we had. Took it to uh, John downstairs, uh, t- told him what was required. He got on with it. Um, about 40 minutes later, the door to the main entrance opens. In comes Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath with Eddie Van Halen in tow. So what had happened was it was a day off on the Van Halen tour and all their gear had gone up to Sheffield because I think they had a gig the night after. This was a day off but the day after they were playing at the Sheffield City Hall or maybe the arena if it was ready by then. And Eddie, on his day off, wanted to go and have a jam with Sabbath because he was mates with Tony But, of course, all his guitars had disappeared off up north. So he didn't know, of course, Tony can't lend him a guitar because he's like you, he's a lefty. And, of course, he has seven-gauge strings or whatever he uses. (laughs) There's nothing he could lend to Eddie that he could have used. So Tony goes, oh, I'll ring exchanges. They might have one of your guitars in. So as luck would have it, we did. Eddie came in uh, wearing kind of a, a peach kind of sweater, jogging bottoms, looking very down at heel. Uh, Tony, of course, all dressed in black uh, because he's Tony. And Eddie just had a, he didn't plug it in because the guitar was brought to him. He just had a little fiddle with it. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, And brought it up to, and we had to, we we signed a higher form, you know, so. (laughs) And Gary Morris said to him at one point, uh, Ed, um, sorry, have you got any ID? And of course, and of course, Eddie's, you know, the, the sarcasm's completely lost on Ed, yeah. And you he, go, no, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah. And another facet to this story was my long, long time friend, Phil Docker, who was at, the, at that time was actually working on constructing the downstairs or knocking walls through so that, the, that this new guitar department could be built. He was meant to be in, but he was off sick. And he'd been oh, to the Van Halen show the night before, and no he's just way. the most enormous Van Halen fan. So Gary Morris, being the rotten sod that he is, <laughs> we're at the counter filling out this hire form, and Gaz just turns to me and says, what's Phil's number? I said, you can't. You can't do that, Gaz. What's his number? Said, you can't. All right. It's 248. So Gaz rings up, and the, the, the conversation went something like this. Oh, Phil, you'll, get, you'll never guess who's in here. No, he is. I am I'm telling you, he is. He's here. No, he's coming to hire a guitar. No, look, Ian, he's here, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely here, Phil. Yeah, he's here. No, look, I wouldn't wind you up about something like this. And then Gary just gets the phone, throws it to us. Speak to him, will you?
0: Just no. hands the phone
1: to Eddie. Eddie picks up the phone and goes, Hi, Eddie Van Halen here. You could hear Phil's bowels evacuating at the other end of the of the telephone line. As he realized he was speaking to his hero, and of course, oh. within he's off. And Phil refused to believe that it actually happened. It was just me putting on an American accent until um, uh, he saw the photo of me and Tony with and Gary with Eddie Van Halen.
0: It's a photo that you you shared recently, I think, on on Twitter, and I'd seen it before several times, but I'd forgotten about it. And I I remember you, and and I think perhaps Gaz told me the. Both gases, I think, told me the story over the years as well. But it's such a brilliant story. Oh, my God. For yeah, And also, I think, what does that say for the shop as well at the time? For Tony Iommi to you know, who obviously is uh, being this, being the lefty guitar channel, you know, the godfather of being lefty along with Jimi Hendrix and whatever. Um, But he would happily come along to the, you know, call the shop up and see what you've got in for his mate, Eddie Van Halen to use so they can go and have a jam. I mean, you know, take the fame out of it. That's just a couple of mates wanting to go and have a jam together on a Tuesday afternoon or whatever, you know.
1: Would you not have loved to have been a fly on the wall at that little rehearsal, that little get together. Yeah, It was one of the Sabbaths. I mean, let, 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 I, I'm I'm trying to think it was in, the, it was in Sabbath at that time. Yeah, it um, wouldn't, wouldn't have been Ozzy, would Dave it? Spitz might, Dave Spitz might have been on bass. Um, it might have been a friend of mine, Pano Bolaris, on drums at the time, I think. I'm not sure that Eric Singer was playing. No, because Eric was in Kiss by that time. Um, but anyway, Jeff Nichols would have been on keyboards uh, yeah. and whatnot, and probably Tony Martin uh, singing. Yeah, so, maybe. So anyway, yeah, would you not have loved to have seen... I mean, Tony might even have a recording of that. You just don't know. Um, yeah, that's right. On something that was captured that day. But yeah, yet the, the, the cachet uh, of, of working in exchanges meant that you did see a lot of people coming into the shop who would, who would just, they just wanted to come in and hang out for a bit. Yeah. Of they course. didn't want really be hassled. They just wanted to come in and, you know, have a natter and a cup of coffee and see what was what. Yeah. Steve Crown, a promotion color scene, used to come in an yeah. awful lot and I remember him showing me and Gaz he said oh, I've got this riff idea I don't know what you think and he goes Dum, dun, da, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> the riverboat song yeah. and um, me and Gaz going yeah that sounds wicked yeah you you should make something out of that so it's funny how you you, it's, you meet. it's me crazy. Start, I, crazy I
0: remember it might have even been that same night I got the Les Paul if not it was another Marshall Clinic around that time that I did down there and Gaz uh, Morris saying to me oh yeah, i got my mate Glenn, uh, Glenn Tipton coming along tonight from Judas Priest. And I was like, and I didn't really know him that. I didn't really know Gaz that work at the time. I was like, all right, thinking, what? And lo and behold, Glenn Tipton just turns up and there he is and had a lovely chat with him and he was just part of the audience. you know what I mean?
1: Well, yeah. So the stars would would pop in, you know, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and whatnot. And I've got a, I mean, I've got a guitar here. Uh, Gary Morris, bless him, he used to look after me because he knew my... He knew my kiss leanings, right? Sure. So one day, it's a Saturday. We'd moved downstairs by this point, so it's the guitar department, you know, and Saturdays in there were mental. It was just, it was just a sea of people yeah. either moving around or wanting to be served or actually buying things. It was not unusual to have two or three customers on the go at once on a Saturday. Mm. And you never had time to stop and have your lunch. You were eating on the go or drinking on the go or whatever. And uh, at one point on a Saturday, it's bedlam behind the counter. Everybody's trying to get to the till to ring stuff in. And Gaz Morris just uh, looks at me and says, Go and have a look in the deposit room. So I haven't got time, Gaz. I've got this. Go and look in the deposit room. So I go and look in the deposit room. And he's left oh. in. He's just part exchanged this um, early 80s Ibanez Iceman with a sunburst finish. And he knew. That I would want it. He knew yeah. I'd be given my love for the, the Paul Stanley uh, PS10s from a few years before. So that ended up costing me about 120 quid. Wow! Um, and I've, as you can see, I've still got it. Even better, not long I'd left the shop for about a year, and I'm in radio by this time. I'm I'm doing the travel reports for for BRNB Radio. My job used to I used to get up at like 4:30 in the morning. I'd be finished by 10. And one day Gaz rings me and as usual with classic Gaz Morris, it's, it's straight to the point, get in the shop now. So what? Just get in the shop now, said, what, are you doing anything? Said, well, funnily enough, funnily enough well, get in there now then. So I drove the 20 minutes into exchanges and he had again, put something aside for me, which is, which was this,
0: which is a oh, Gibson, it's freely. It is, the it, very isn't? one. Oh, I love that. I've always loved that headstock. It's so good.
1: Uh, And some guy had bought it brand new and was terrified of playing it, absolutely terrified of playing it, and he just sold it for cash. Really? And and Gaz had sold it, you know, got got a a decent price for it, and said, "I know wants this, Ian." So he he rang me straight away, and and, and, you know, that's that was a silly price I paid for that. Uh, It's it's certainly. it's the prized asset in my collection, I think I would say. Yeah. But that's wow. what happened in exchanges. Things just the oddest things used to come in on part yeah. on, on exchange. And, and there were sort of, you know, as I said, when I first arrived, there were loads of PV renowns or Roland jazz choruses that everybody was getting rid of to get something else. And then it moved on to you know, another amp or another preamp or another effects pedal that everybody wanted. Yeah. Fascinating times.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. It was and you know just uh, from an outsider looking in just having these glimpses every every now and then coming to the store it was uh you know I could see the rapport you guys had and you know I've, I've you know kept in touch with a lot of you guys over the years and they, you know everyone's gone on to do um various other things which sort of leads us on really you did sort of you mentioned that uh, after you left exchanges you got into broadcasting how did that happen and what were the early gigs the broadcasting things that you'd started doing
1: well, I I, uh, I got it of, I was in 1997. Um, I was offered a job to go and work for Laney because oh, okay. they, they just won the contract to distribute Ibanez yeah. in the UK.
0: So that was would have been um, Headstock.
1: Yeah, Headstock. That's right. Yeah. That, was the, that was the launch of that company.
0: Right. And
1: um, I was approached to be the Headstock guy and uh, deal with the uh, the Japanese and the Korean deliveries of the Ibanez's, get them checked, you know, for QC, yep. and send them out to the, the dealers. Um, so I ended up working in Cradley Heath at the Laney factory for about a year, but um, I didn't really enjoy it that much. It was a fairly lonely job. You didn't really have much company. Um, and just before I left exchanges, what had happened was, Keith, who I mentioned earlier, my best mate who I formed my first band with, he wrote a letter to the head of sport at at, at BRMB radio in Birmingham saying, my mate Ian does brilliant impressions of football managers like Trevor Francis and Graham Taylor down the pub. You should get him on the radio. Now, I don't know how many letters people like Tom Ross as a head of sport get about, you know, or want to be on the radio. But something in this letter obviously piqued his interest. So to cut a long story short, he rang me whilst I was still working at exchanges to ask if I would record a, a comedy sketch to go on his Saturday afternoon preview show before a live game. Wow! Well, it didn't <laughs> wasn't get paid for it or anything, you know. Sure. It was just for opportunity, uh, just for giggles. Yeah. And that developed uh, over the course of the time that I left exchanges and went to Laney, and then early '98. He rings me up in the office one morning says, says, um, this Tom Ross, this is, says, um, are you, um, what are you doing at the minute? It's not like, it's not like another Gareth Morris phone call. What are you doing? <laughs> um, well, I'm just uh, setting some stuff. Can you come in the office now? It's another one of these calls. I said, yeah, please come in now. I need to see you. But he puts the phone down. And I think, oh, I know what this is. This is like, he's, he wants to give me the pill. You know, he wants to say he doesn't want to use me anymore, but, Thanks very much. So I make up this cock and bull story about needing to go to the jewelry quarter in Birmingham to pick up some guitar parts, drove the works van into the BRMB car park, which is right at the top of the Aston expressway by the old HP source factory where ATV used to have their buildings, right? Way way back, used to make crossroads. And, um, I meet up with Tom and he takes me across the programming floor, knocks on the door, this door I've not been in before. And it's the program controller of the station, Paul Jackson, the son of Richard Park, the, the famous radio impresario, who is the Fame Academy judge on the BBC. Oh, yeah, his, yeah, yeah. His son, Paul Jackson, was the program controller. And I'd sat down in his office, and within five minutes, he's offered me a job going up in the, uh, the plane that flies around Birmingham every morning in the week, doing the travel updates, the Flying Eye, as it was called. Yeah. And he said, do you want the job? And I had to say yes or no then. And I said yes. And that was it. The next week I was up in a plane. Uh, I, I gave Laney the pill. And, and, um, and I
0: mean, just to clarify to anyone watching and listening, you, you, weren't, you didn't have to do any impressions of football managers in the plane. This was just you doing your own voice, right? It was
1: me, me. Although they did, well, the, the whole reason why he employed me was he wanted to encourage me to have some fun with it. Oh, really? Uh, because the host of The Breakfast Show on B, Les Ross, who an astounding talent as a broadcaster, not known nationally, but if you mention Les Ross to anybody around the Midlands, they go, oh, yeah, round the world phone calls, The Breakfast Show. This guy could talk for England about anything. Right. Brilliant at it as well. Um, so, yeah, eventually, like Des Linen would be doing the travel updates into Les's <laughs> show or, or Billy Connolly or something like that. I don't know. So, yeah, that, that that was encouraged. Oh, wow. Then, little baby steps and baby steps from there. You started getting offered shifts on the AM frequency station, the sister station. And then, you know, basically within two years of starting in the, the plane, I was the drive time presenter on BRMB with a show called The Barmy Brummies. Honestly, Chris, it was just a whirlwind, an absolute whirlwind. And, and little stages of, oh that's odd. But, but it all built up and built up. Um and in amongst all that in amongst all that I'm also starting as a football reporter because Tom decided he needed somebody to report on football matches for him and he decided I was the guy. So in about 98 99 that season I started doing match reports which turned into doing full commentaries for him. So suddenly 2 years before I'm a guitar salesman. 2 years on from that I'm commentating on Birmingham city or West Bromwich Albion and doing, you know, shifts and going up in a plane,
0: doing the travel incredible. bulletin. It was, a
1: bit of, it was a bit of a handbrake turn career wise.
0: Of course. But it, I mean, quite a pivotal moment when you, when you took the works van and, and nipped off quickly to go and have that chat, because had you not done that, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? The whole sliding doors moment where you it think it, you, like somebody
1: else would have been offered that job instead of me. Yeah. somebody else would have been sat down and said, right, you want the flying eye? So yeah. I, I was probably on a list. don't know whether I was on the top of that list, but I was probably on a list of people what? that they had in mind
0: for that I mean, role. Before that, though, you know, your friend sending in stuff to, to the station, saying, oh, you need to check my mate out, you know, and just the, the yeah. luck of the draw of that happening like that. He never
1: lets me forget it either. No, I bet.
0: Me... <laughs> Every
1: time you go out to dinner. Every single time, he's, you know, he, he's quick... He's quick with the reminders, but as okay. I say, he's still, he's still my best friend to this day. So um,
0: something's so, doing sure. Cool. Absolutely. So from there on, I mean, you kind of had a, you know, you, you, the way I see it, you kind of had a bit of a parallel thing going on, no matter, regardless of the, um, the broadcast and stuff, you still had the music. Uh, yeah. Was this about the time of the, the dress to Kill stuff started happening?
1: Well, I'd, I'd done original bands, you know, in my teens and my twenties. Whilst I was you know, at exchanges uh, and a little bit before that, there was a band I was in called Shotgun Wedding who were a Birmingham-based sort of uh, aerosmithy smithy type band that uh, didn't make it. And then in 94, I joined uh, a Welsh band who were just changing their name from City Kids to Sons of God. Uh, they were amazing. They were brilliant. Um, but again, they didn't um, uh, make any particular headway. And then I, I started doing in the late 90s, around the time when the BRMB thing came along, I sort of had a moment of clarity that, right, I'm not going to make it. I did have the delusions of grandeur about I'm going to be a rock star when I right. was 15, 16. I had that, uh, and, you know, by the time you get to the age of 29, 30, when this BRMB thing came along, then I'd had the moment of clarity and said, okay, you just need to have some fun now. Sure. Rather than, you know, entertain notions of being a successful professional musician so I started helping out tribute bands I I started with there was a Bon Jovi tribute band in Birmingham called New Jersey that I played with for some time Um, and then the Dress to Kill thing came along in 2005 which was for those that don't know people Dress to Kill are the longest running Kiss tribute band in the world they started in 1990 and uh, they needed a drummer in two thousand and five. I'd, I'd started another Kiss tribute band a couple of years before that, which had gone okay. But when Dress to Kill come calling, um, you you turn them down. So I joined them in two thousand and five and ended up playing not just around all around the UK, but around Europe. You know, places like Norway and Spain and yeah, and things like that. Um, yeah, with the whole the makeup. Yeah
0: i i remember i remember being at one of the guitar shows obviously it must have been music live or something like that at the nec and i'm sure one of the guys the guy who ever played paul stanley in Dress to kill he was i'm sure just stood around one of the maybe one of the the companies or shops that got him in just to stand there and look like paul stanley but i swear to god now i've never met paul stanley unfortunately but because he had the makeup and the, he was Oh my God! It was like his twin. It was uncanny how much he looked and acted like him. It was incredible. I mean, not yeah. he wasn't. He didn't even have a guitar, and he wasn't even singing.
1: No, that was Ash. That and Ash has been the the the, the Paul Stanley in dress to Kill since day one. Incredible. Um, incredible. Uh, and uh, yeah, he he totally embodies that whole. You know, he'd be on stage, and he ha- he has all the Paul Stanley stage patter. Yeah, right. Completely sorted. So I can quite imagine him being Paul Stanley without a guitar in his hand, just tossing around on his heels, helping yeah, exactly. for, for a company. One of the biggest gigs we ever did was at the NEC, actually. We, we, there was a 2010, I think it was, they did a music live at the NEC, and one of the halls was, um, was sectioned off so that they could recreate the 1988 Donington Monsters of Rock lineup with...
0: Oh, okay, with tribute bands.
1: Maiden, Kiss... Dave Lee Roth, um, Megadeth, Guns N' Roses. Right. They even got a Halloween tribute in. So we ended up doing, uh, we were second on the bill to High On Maiden. Amazing. Um, and that was just a brilliant, I played the NEC. Yeah, that yeah, was, uh, yeah,
0: of course. I was
1: quite a kick, that.
0: I mean, the whole thing for you, though, joining that band must have been, is the ultimate gig, really, for you, as a drummer, as a huge Kiss fan. Yeah. And also at that point, you know, because you'd been doing the broadcasting thing for so long, you could, like you say, just go and have a load of fun with it with your playing.
1: Yes, absolutely. I knew I knew the parts. Um, as I say, Peter Chris had been, you know, a good influence on me. And then, of course, Eric Carr, who played drums for Kiss in the eighties, yeah. because what Dress to Kill did was they, you know, the set list spanned the the whole the whole gamut every album. That Kiss ever did. You know, we do 23 song sets, you know, they were pretty punishing yeah. shows. Because of course, you've got two hours to get into makeup and costume.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Sound checks, We didn't have a massive road crew with us. There was just the four of us and one guy who would set up the pyros and help one of us if we had an emergency during the show. But sure. Yeah, that was it was hard bloody work.
0: I bet. Could, I bet.
1: You'd have to do two nights on a weekend, a Friday and a Saturday the Friday to recoup costs and the Saturday was how you made a little bit of profit. Sure. We'd have a Mercedes splitter van. Um, we'd all cram into that with all the gear. Somehow we got all the gear in, um, find a, you know, travel tavern, partridge yeah. stop to stay sure. in on the Friday night, find a carvery. We didn't have breakfast on Saturday morning cause we were, we were up so late we'd find the nearest Toby Carvery or whatever it was, and we'd just load in the carbs <laughs> on the afternoon, halfway between there and whatever gig we had that night. And that Toby Carvery kept us going all day, basically, so we didn't need any food when we got to the, the, the next gig. But I wouldn't change it for the world. Those were brilliant, brilliant times. Of course. Um, uh, and, yeah, to, to, to play. We, the, the most memorable night I have we were asked to go and play two nights in Spain in 2009, and the one night was in um, a Spanish holiday resort, Lorette de Mar, um, which is a coastal resort not too far from Barcelona. And it's a place, a, a thing called the Clone Festival. The Clone Festival. They have one tribute band a year come and play, and they asked us this one year. And the stage was actually built into the the, the seafront at the one end of the seafront. So stretching out, you could see the the the, the, the seafront. You can and we sound check we go into the porter cabin down underneath we get changed we come back up i've never seen so many people in my entire life really for a show. and we we they loved it and you know the, especially when we played i was made for loving you which of course is the european sure. kiss kit yeah everyone jumping up and down right astonishing absolutely astonishing um you actually felt like a member of kiss that night even though I'm nowhere near but something yeah. like that.
0: They you know those those bands make great livings you know um, especially the bands that don't tour as the original lineups you know the, the tribute um, band versions of those always do so well man um i want I want to move on kind of because on the other side of the fence you were still broadcasting, and by now you were doing the talk sport thing yes, so how yeah. how did, how did you, the, the talk sport thing come about
1: well um I left. BRMB in as a as a uh a presenter yeah. in 2002 Um but I stayed on as a football commentator uh for the next two years. Um I'd like to have stayed as a presenter, but circumstances um dictated otherwise. Um and I was sort of I did football commentary for a couple of years, did a bit of shopping telly, funnily okay. enough. Uh, during that time for a place in Redditch, not too far from where I was living. Um, But then in 2004, uh, an old radio buddy who I had BRMB connections with said, "Um, TalkSport are looking for a Midlands reporter. You should get yourself in there. So thanks to Nigel, um, I submitted a show reel to their head of sport and he said, yeah, come in. So from the 2004 season... I started as a, I was just a reporter, wasn't a commentator. So sure. you go to sure. matches on a Saturday and you just do updates. Yeah. But it was national radio. So even though it was a different role to what I'd done before, you could see the potential in where it might lead. And, uh, and you know, things did, you know, develop to the extent that by 2006, I was doing commentaries on games at the World Cup that summer in Germany. Um, and it just grew again, it just grew and grew and grew little stages. So by 2010, I went out to South Africa, um, to cover the, the entire World Cup out there, saw the most amazing sites, you know, uh,
0: Cape
1: Cape Town and Pretoria and Johannesburg and Port Elizabeth. Um, yeah. uh, so talk sport again, kind of grew organically the same way that BRMB had done for me. I'm still there now, um, yeah. as I said, you know, 17 years, um, man and boy. Um, my role has, has varied and changed over the years, but I'm back doing um, football commentaries now, which is my stock in trade, whether it be, a, um, you know, a Premier League game or a, or a championship game. But yeah, I, I, still, I still talk about um, 22 men running about after a bag of wind on a pitch.
0: Um, but it's a but it's another thing that you're you know the, you're equally as passionate about surely than you are playing drums and kiss and commentating on football right.
1: Well, Birmingham City is a hereditary disease in my family that's been passed down from generation <laughs> to generation. So I'm a third a third generation blue nose, I guess you could call me, because of my granddad and my dad. Okay. Before me and their love for the club. So. Um, yeah you, that just gets ingrained into you
0: yeah um, of course it's a
1: question as to what degree of passion yeah. you end, um you end up having my two older brothers aren't they're into well Rob my eldest brother he's into it my middle brother Phil not pretty ambivalent he'll look out for the results but he's not really that interested me I fell for a hook line and sinker and would go with my dad whenever I could and when he stopped going after one relegation too many, when my dad said, no more, I'm not going, I can't take the heartbreak anymore. Then I <laughs> stupidly picked up the slack and, and kept going on my own uh, and then went with friends and things like that. So yeah, um, becoming a football commentator wasn't too much of a stretch. And it was something that I wondered whether I could do. Sure. And um, well, I've, I've I've lasted this long
0: what I, uh, I was gonna say not only that though but in more recent times in general you've still upheld the music side of it as well like i was saying you know you've you lead this quite clever parallel life in keep trying to keep an equal balance of both it's um, not that
1: clever oh,
0: <laughs> but you've you've done a couple of your own solo albums uh you tour with a uh theater band that do a load of uh, like rock covers called leather and lace yes. uh, so you know you're still keeping your hand in it massively really
1: yeah, well, the 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 solo album thing was an itch I felt I had to scratch, um, in the wake of um, the passing of Steve Harris, the shy guitar player. Yeah, who I got to have as, a, as a customer at exchanges and whatnot. Such a talented player, lovely, fluid, melodic rock player Steve Harris was. Yeah, and he passed away um, in two thousand and eleven. And it was at his funeral when I was just chatting to the producer of the last Shy album that he put together, knowing he was poorly. And Alex had said to me, Well, he just said, you know, I could get, you know, anything could happen tomorrow. I want to get this stuff out there. And I just had this light bulb. I've got all these songs I've never recorded properly. Let's do it. So I recorded what turned out to be uh, Prove You Wrong, which came out in, um, let me get this right. Um 2013. Uh Lee Small, uh, the singer from uh, Phenomena and Shy, incredible vocalist. He sang on most of that for me because I didn't feel particularly confident as a vocalist. By the time I was recording another one, because I it it had what had happened was that the first album had lit the fire into me as a songwriter. Then Second Time Around came along a couple right. of years later. Um and I've got a third one. A third solo album is in the works at the moment. Um, I don't know when it will be finished, but it's about halfway through. And yeah, the, the, the leather and lace thing is a, is a great thing. It's a seven-piece uh, theatre rock band that plays, you know, it, it, we, classic rock anthems and power ballads is how we bill it. So you can be playing Toto, Foreigner, Journey, Oreo, Speedwagon, Def Leppard, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, all oh, that sort of stuff. theatre setting. um seven-piece band of male and female, lead singer two guitars bass keyboards and, and me on the on the drums at the back uh and i love it it's just i've gone into things like in-ear monitors in 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 the last couple of years and my hearing isn't the greatest it's it's suffered a lot as sure. a drummer over the years um and in-ear monitors and the old um the drum front thing you know the uh yeah the, the butt kicker thing butt kicker. Yeah. oh my God. those two in those two things have completely saved my drumming bacon yeah um, i bet so that you're not you'd not have a a giant you know subwoofer subwoofer behind you. yeah blasting you've got a a nice pair of in-ears uh and you've got your butt kicker for all the you know the the low basically goes through your backside yeah uh, and it relaxes your playing i think that's the, the thing i've discovered about it it actually relaxes my playing tempo wise so the two guitarists in front of me aren't panicking about. Well, I've got this cold as ice solo coming up in a minute. He's going about five BPM too fast because he's he's running away with it. Yeah, I don't it's,
0: no, it's funny with the with the in monitor thing because uh, yeah, I've been using for probably the last ten years or so, and especially when you're playing acoustic, because the biggest biggest mistake a guitarist can ever make when they're playing acoustic live is if they can't hear enough of themselves, they'll start hitting it harder. Naturally, you you just want to start, and of course all that sounds like out front is some guy, you know, really, you know, an acoustic guitar when it should be nice and gentle. When you've got the ears in, you've got a lovely little mix. It's right there and it's right in, right there in the middle of your head. And you can hear it beautifully, you know? So they are yeah. saving, saving the day with a lot of people. And those butt kicker things are amazing as well.
1: Well, I, Craig Blundell turned me onto those. Right. Uh, right. Uh, and, and Craig um, showed me the benefits of it. And you don't actually realise until you're actually at a gig and you try it for the first time, and it's it's revelatory for any drummers. I know this is a guitarist.
0: No, it's channel. fine. I've had other drummers on here. It's fine.
1: But guitarists, tell your drummers if they haven't tried a you know a Porter and Davis, um, they're not they're not cheap. I mean, let's have it right. There, you know, it's an investment. But to me, and for the sake of the band that yeah. you're in, what it does for the the, the how it calms a player down. It's a worthwhile investment because quite often if you're waiting for a subwoof or maybe the mix isn't great and you're not getting a very good bass drum sound in your monitor, sometimes you're feeling for it as a player. I can only go by my experience. and Maybe that affects your tempo because you're more desperate to hear something and somehow you're playing, uh, your dynamics don't work the same way. Yeah. Once you're relaxed and you know that you've got that thing going through your posterior. Yeah. Clockwork, and you've got the in ears with all the drivers you need, so that everything's clear. Yeah. Then, wow, what that does for your playing! is... Yeah, it's a wonderful
0: thing. Incredible. Absolutely. You've done other things more recently, as well as talk sport. You've done commercials, you've done voiceovers and stuff like that, and also, you know, one of the things when I first heard you on it for the first time, I was just uh, so pleased for you. You also, you're on Planet Rock every now and then as well.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, again. Uh, that was not by design. I, 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 I will freely admit whilst I was a Planet Rock devotee and a, and a listener, I had no, um, no desire to, to muscle in as it sure. were on that territory. And I always get the year wrong with this. I think it might be 2015 when I got an email out of the blue through my website from uh, Rick Blacksill, who's the, the head honcho at Planet Rock. He looks after a number of stations within that radio group, like uh, yes. Absolute and, uh, Magic and Kiss and things like that. Not the, not the Kiss FM I'd like to present on. It's a very <laughs> different-
0: <laughs> Can you imagine?
1: And um, he, somebody, and I still to this day don't know who, had tipped him off, you should get Ian on Planet Rocky He loves his...
0: It wasn't your mate again, was it?
1: I don't think it was Keith again. No, no. I don't think he's got. I don't think he's got Rick Blacksell's ear somehow. <laughs> Somebody did. So I was asked, "Can you go in and, and do a little demo, see whether you're a, up to it?" And um, I said, "Absolutely. I'll, I'll I'll demo stuff up for you." So yeah, um, the Planet Rock thing suddenly became a thing where you would cover for. Normally I cover for Paul Anthony these days on breakfast, and sometimes for Wyatt. And sometimes for Darren, if the football work doesn't get in the way, but um, yeah, that's that's a wonderful little thing because you can just be you. You respect the music, you know. Of
0: course, yeah, yeah. You, um, you know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to all of that as well. Equally the same as with football, surely. And and you know, it's a great I've, station. I've,
1: I've, I've learned to get into. Uh, this. There, I'll happily admit, there's, there's <laughs> artists I hadn't appreciated enough before I worked at Planet Rock. Who, when you actually listen to the body of work, you realise how good they are. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers is probably as good an example as any of a band and an artist that's somehow overlooked. Yeah. Um, You know, it it happens, doesn't it? You know, there's bands that that somehow pass you by. It's it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just how it happens. But when you you start listening to some of that stuff, and you know, uh, you start delving deeper, you realise, my God, this guy's got a body of work that's absolutely. Um, and the, the, there's other bands as well that that, that I could uh, you know Linda Skinner and things like that some some of the deeper cuts you play from them when you realize you know that they're a talented bunch so basically working at Planet Rock is kind of having my iPod
0: um, yeah of course uh, same you know, same with me when I have it on in the car and it's you know I'm glad because there was a, a while ago it was I don't know maybe 10 years ago it was looking quite iffy if they continue with the station because i think they were struggling with funding but funnily enough this is quite a funny story that i don't think i've ever mentioned before but when planet rock first started when it i mean which would have been i don't know 21
1: 21 years old now
0: that's right that's right it is because last year they were doing the big 20 20th birthday and i very nearly put this on social media to them because my one of my best friends. Uh, Tank Montana he's a Canadian radio presenter he was one of the first presenters on Planet Rock and so it was all very um, primitive at the time and I even remember him saying they didn't they were just trying to get all the tracks in to play out on the station and they didn't have they did I'm sure they didn't have like Enter Sandman by Metallica and he borrowed my black album so he could they could burn it off so they had the track on their system and stuff like that But before Planet Rock launched, um, of course, it was really mainly just on their website, you know, that you could listen in at the time because DAB hadn't really taken off massively as it is now with people with it in their cars and whatever. Yeah. And so they had a a holding website before the radio station launched. And because Tank was involved, what they wanted was just some background music to play on the website for visitors when they went on there. So me and Tank on drums and Rob, who who was played with me loads, it was a recording of the three of us just jamming for about ten or fifteen minutes that they had on a loop that was recorded at my mum's house, and that was what you would hear when you went to the Planet Rock website uh, before the station launched. That's top draw it 's funny isn 't it and I, I forget about it sometimes and it wasn 't until i was i think Rob reminded me about it or tank mine reminded me remind me about it when we spoke, and I was like, oh my God, I totally forgot about that, that was, we were the first band to play on planet rock
1: <laughs> you, well it's, it's, it is a real, it's a real privilege to work there and you, you do you do understand um, as much with planet rock as you do with talk sports about the listener base uh, and respecting the listeners as, as as much as you respect the, you know, the, the music. Um, I don't, I don't get too much abuse. I, I, you know, there's, there's, you know, there are people online that do want to, you know, deliberately wind you up, but I, I don't get anything like as much as lots of other people in, in broadcasting do. So I should be grateful that right a lot of that kind of um, passes me by, but I, I do, Honestly, whether it's Talksport or whether it's Planet Rock, it is not. It's never lost on me um, the responsibility that I have. You know, to to make the listener want to stick around. Um, All you can do is be yourself. Anyway, you can't pretend to be um, somebody else and put on a a funny mid Mid Atlantic accent, and suddenly you're dropping the Ts in your words and substituting of the D's. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know you just try and be yourself uh and of hopefully, and hopefully people um respond to that and warm to it so it, uh, that's been a really nice little thing and i, I did a, a podcast as well last year when lockdown first hit which was just based on the comedy stuff i used to do on brnb with all the silly voices and parody songs and things like that and with the, with the setup i've got here which is i'm sure not too dissimilar to what you got there with i've got a drum kit over there a keyboard just behind me and guitars as you've seen sure. um that was a good fun thing last year to make silly parody songs of heart or um hot chocolate or things like that just for you know for giggles that was uh that was good fun
0: yeah i bet i bet and i think surely you're now at the point um and i you know i wouldn't say this because uh, you're a friend, and I and I do g- obviously genuinely recognise your voice. But when I heard you on Planet Right, I thought, you know, good on. Him. But I think you are one of those recognisable voices now as well. You know what I mean in radio, I personally, and I'm I'll sure do- a lot of people would agree.
1: Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've got a fairly. Some, I don't know whether I've got a particularly Midlands accent. I'm, it's not a uh, it's not a accent. In you know, and it's not a Gaz
0: town. Morris accent. No. No. No.
1: It's like, no, 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 no I've got an accent that I guess you could say is Midlands. I, I don't know whether that makes makes it um, distinctive. I go for a bath. I mow the grass. You know, I don't. Why would bath. you do
0: that? You could go for a bath and, and mow the you grass. See,
1: see that, that there's 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 the dichotomy. That's that's you know, but that's just the way that Brummies talk. It's always been having a laugh.
0: Exactly. Or, you
1: know, yeah. Bath. So, well, thank you. Well, you know, it's it's it, if if I do sound distinctive then that's great um and as long as i still sound like me i would hate to think that i went on air and sounded like somebody that wasn't me sounded sure. like a, an, an exaggerated version of myself
0: yeah 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 i
1: wouldn't be very comfortably with me i'd rather just go on air and be me take it or leave it what's
0: and all well said i think we'll wrap it up there ian danter thank you very much mate i salute you chris I salute you too. Cheers, mate. Top man.